Uh, hey, Pammy, I got a question for you. What's that? What's the opposite of a miracle? A disaster. Oh, we've got a Christmas disaster on our hands. Uh-oh. What happened? Chrissy lost her voice. That's what happened. Oof. Who took it? I bet it was the Grinch. <laughs> Curse him and his Jim Carrey ways. Although knowing our luck, it's because we had unpaid bills. I told you we should have, have taken a loan through Marley and Scrooge Incorporated. I don't know. I've, I've heard bad things about them. I, I hear that Marley guy is pretty goofy. Well, so long as we're not called on another Christmas adventure, I think we'll be okay. Because Lord knows she's in no shape to bail us out again. Oh, darn. No hard liquor for me. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And Merry Christmas. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Penny and James minus Chrissy. Kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Chrissy will be back as soon as we find her voice. It's got to be around here somewhere, I swear, man. Did you put it in the safe? No, and it's also not in the in the storage closet where we keep the list. Hmm. Believe me, I I had to reorganize all those pages just to check. Could be in the fridge. I hear losing your voice comes with catching a cold. So today, this is our annual Christmas episode. And we indeed have another one of the festive four, as we discussed last year when we looked at the longest of the festive four, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Which was a nice revisit, That it's better than I remembered it being. Yeah, and we have a counterpart in that both of today's uh, productions are Christmas redemption stories, but one of them has to expand the material it's based on. The other one has to dramatically contract it. It feels like a speed run. <laughs> to be sure. So in chronological order, we're going to start with the one that was expanded. Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Ted Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss, looms large over children's literature, but not every rhyme and or illustration he did was meant for kids. During World War II, in particular, he was creating political cartoons and hooked up with Warner Brothers to contribute to the private snafu animated instructional films intended for servicemen overseas. It would be there he'd meet his future collaborators on the majority of the various animated specials based on his work that would be created for television in Dr. Seuss's own lifetime, Frizz Freeling and Chuck Jones. Ah, uh, Dr. Seuss, the, the one man who can make up words for his rhymes and not look be looked down upon for it. Depending on how often William Shakespeare rhymed, anyway. Ah, uh, you know, that's fair. It's actually really amazing if you look up how many words were just created by William Shakespeare that we use today. Like, mm -hmm. bump, for example. Now, in 1955, Dr. Seuss wrote the poem The Hubub and the Grinch which was published in Red Book Magazine that May. Seuss hung on to the name of the latter character, 
though not in association with the poem's characterization as a shady salesman. Goodness knows there's no shortage of those in Seuss's books as it is, including the Onceler from the Lorax and Sylvester McMonkey McBean from the Sneetches. Now, one December 26, shortly thereafter, according to Seuss, he was feeling very much like what the Grinch would turn out to be when contemplating the health issues his wife Helen was enduring and the growing commercialization of the Christmas holiday. I I can, well, not to the wife aspect, but I can definitely... I can definitely uh, relate to the frustrations of how corporate this holiday has become. To be sure, the real war on Christmas should be waged against the Fortune 500. (laughs) But with that feeling in mind, he captured it in 1957's How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which he completed in three months and would reach store shelves in December of that year, as timely a release as one could dream of. Nearly ten years later, in 1966, Chuck Jones was long gone from Warner Brothers thanks to their discovery of his moonlighting for UPA on their film Gay Paris, which violated his contract. It almost hardly mattered, though, as Warner shut down their animation studio shortly thereafter, but I digress. Now working for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, Jones was finding success adapting children's books into short films, winning an Oscar for the 1965 MGM short subject The Dot and the Line, a romance in lower mathematics, adapted from the 1963 book by Norman Juster. When when he wasn't just doing Tom and Jerry shorts, that is. Right. While at MGM, Chuck turned his attention to television, and contacted Dr. Seuss to see if he could make a special out of one of his books, settling on The Grinch. Now, it's not stated, but it wouldn't be a stretch to figure that Chuck was aware of the success of prior Christmas specials like Rankin Bass's Stop Motion Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which again, we looked at last year, and Bill Melendez's Bittersweet A Charlie Brown Christmas, what with Melendez being one of Jones's co-creators at Warner. I, I, I would honestly say the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special is, is arguably the quintessential Christmas special, but we'll get to that at another point in time, I'm sure. Oh yeah, but my argument would be for this very special we're talking about today. It's a more than fair choice. <laughs> now, Seuss needed a little convincing, but eventually he relented, and... One of the single finest animated specials made for television would become the result. CBS, flush with success from the other arguable special, Charlie Brown Christmas, gave Chuck and MGM a budget of $315,000, easily four times what they paid Melendez for the Peanuts cartoon. Can I even imagine what that would be with an by modern what what that would inflate to by modern day standards well let's take a look a few moments later so according to the amortization calculator the value in 2023 would be about two million nine hundred thirty nine thousand nine hundred seventy dollars and thirty eight cents jeez i'm crow that's a lot of moolah Hmm, yeah i would say this one definitely does look 
a lot better than the Charlie Brown Christmas quality wise. Definitely a more beautifully animated special. Somehow I doubt any modern day special would get that kind of a budget. Oh, and of course, also they had the sponsorship of the Foundation for Full Service Banks. Now, today, the sponsor plugs have been removed from the broadcasts versions and DVD versions, but you can find them online on YouTube and other sources. Yeah, I kind of got thrown off when I found the uh, somebody posted the original like airing of the Peanuts Christmas special or someone got a hold of a film from the original. You you know what I mean? Anyways, uh, that had the Coca-Cola sponsorship on it. That actually threw me off because it was like so weird since, you know, I never saw that on it before. Also kind of flies in the face of the message of the Peanuts special, but uh, we're getting off topic. (laughs) We'll, We'll have to remember that for when we discuss that particular special. Yeah. Seems more and more likely for next year. Now, of course, there were several more creative minds who worked on this special, and their contributions deserve mention before we dive in. Songwriting for the lyrics Seuss provided was done by Albert Haig, who even in his later years held a bemused pride in writing the first ever Christmas polka. (laughs) Co-directing with Jones was his frequent collaborator of over 30 years, Ben Washam, whose other major claim to fame is designing the chain restaurant mascot, Big Boy. I've never been to a Big Boy restaurant, but boy, do I know that character. We used to have one in the early to mid-80s in Rochester, but it's long gone now. And among the many animators is Phil Roman, who would indeed go on to found Film Roman, which would produce many of the Garfield specials, including the Christmas one we looked at last year, and also took over production of The Simpsons as of Season 4. More on that a little later on. Yeah, there's a scene in this that's going to make me mention The Simpsons, but we'll we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. And what voices we have in this special. Leading the way as the voice of the Grinch and providing the narration is horror movie legend Boris Karloff. Boris frickin' Karloff. (laughs) whose iconic performance as Frankenstein's monster in three films for MGM has been the basis of so many portrayals ever since. He is also the first actor to portray the mummy. Hmm, that's right. Now, with a single line in this special, voice actress June Foray melts hearts as Cindy Lou Who. Of course, June's credits are numerous, ranging from Lucifer the Cat and Disney Cinderella to Rocky the Flying Squirrel to Magicka Dispel on DuckTales and Dear God, I better stop there or we'll be here all day. You gotta at least mention Granny from uh, Looney Tunes because she played that for a very long time, consistently. (laughs) Well, I had to leave one for you to put in there. (laughs) Fair enough. R.I.P. June Foray. Yeah. Rounding out the speaking cast... As the Grinch's dog, Max, is the original voice of Gumby and the voice of Filmation's Archie Andrews, Dallas McKinnon. Nice. I actually did not know that one. And finally, singing the inescapable, you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Pony the Tiger. Yep. It's animation's most famous bass singer, and yes, indeedy, the original voice of serial mascot, Tony the Tiger. Thurl Ravenscroft. There, there was a meme a couple of years ago where someone was saying that when they found out that Tony the Tiger was the one singing, 
the the you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. It made him think that Tony the Tiger had a bat had a really bad breakup with the Grinch. <laughs> and then he died and went to a mansion at uh, Disneyland. Woo! Grim grinning ghosts come out to socialize. Hey, if there's any place to be immortalized. Yeah. So, are we ready to go into the special? Well, I think there's one more thing we have to say about that actor. He's great! Okay, sorry. Had to be said. Amidst the mountains surrounding Whoville, we hear the chorus that has become as synonymous with the season as any carol. While some Who's gather around a tree they're going to take home. Already, Seuss's imagination is on display, as the Who's come in so many sizes, some as small as a cricket. Though, uh, if Horton the Elephant is to believe, this is not the smallest they get. This is definitely true. Reaching town, we launch into the aforementioned Christmas polka, Trim Up the Tree, which is loaded with Seussian nonsense, as wild, colorful displays result from the Who's decorating. We also get our first look at Cindy Lou Who, who stands out from the other Who designs thanks to her eyes. A clear signal to anyone paying attention that this is someone to pay attention to. Not just that, but between the eyes and the smile, she is definitely the most, uh, other than the Grinch himself, the most uh, obviously Chuck Jones-drawn character design in the whole special. Coincidentally, as I was typing all of this, Microsoft Word recognizes Susian as a correctly spelled word, but not the plural of who. Well, At least who as a... Uh, denominator of a uh, hominid sapient species. I'm impressed that Susian, though. Yeah. Then again, I think Pokemon is also considered an actual vocabulary word now, so... You know, I once noticed that my previous job, when I would be writing scripts for uh, other things, that the iteration of Microsoft Word back then recognized Gandalf as a correctly spelled word, but did not recognize Linus or Rapunzel. Didn't recognize Linus? I'm more surprised at Rapunzel, personally. Yeah, that is a classic fairy tale, but, I mean, Linus is a legitimate name. That's why I'm confused on that one. That, too. Well, that's my thought for you. (laughs) Charles Schultz did not create the name Linus. (laughs) (laughs) Anywho. Boris's narration begins as we pan back up the mountains to find the Grinch, slumped in his stooped posture, leaning against the opening to his cave. And somehow has pockets in his fur. The Grinch hates the season and all its trappings as we get visual demonstrations of the possible reasons why, culminating in his heart being two sizes too small. So uh, his ability to rotate his head 180 degrees is pretty impressive. He might be part owl. Either that or he's possessed. Or, you know, or like they said, his head's not screwed on, right? Max, the Grinch's lovable dog, comes out as the Grinch launches into his rant about Christmas being practically here. And we get a little of that trademark Chuck Jones eyes bulging into the person you're staring at bit. We'd see him do with Daffy Duck. So much, so many like great Chuck Jones expressions throughout this whole like speech. Mm-hmm. 
It's easy to say that Chuck poured a lot of his old Looney Tunes tropes into this special, but that's not all. When Dr. Seuss saw the first sketches of the Grinch intended for production, he remarked that it looked more like Chuck himself than the book's protagonist. Ha! Wow. So he rambles and raves about the Who's Christmas joys, and the thing he loathes most is the noise, noise, noise! I can relate to on that one. <laughs> oh, there's feastings on roast beast and who hash on toast, but it's the singing and squawking that the Grinch hates the most. Does remind me, I think the only thing that came, the only good thing that came out of the Illumination Grinch movie was the fact that uh, they actually had a roast beef omelet at IHOP. It was quite good. <laughs> I wish I was creative enough to write this whole thing in Susie and Rhyme, but uh, those two sentences were as far as I could get. To write this all in Susie and Rhyme, I don't think we have the energy or the time. <laughs> so here, Chuck gives so much life to what was described in the book things that were mostly left to the reader's imaginations but had to be visualized for the medium of animation. And thankfully, they're all as whimsical as they sound. Things like garginklers and sluice slunkers. And each one is more elaborate than the last. We'd go over them all, but dear lord, we'd be here until Christmas 2024 if we tried. Yeah, good job. I do have to say I like the... Uh... Trump, I, I don't remember exactly what that one was called, but the trumpet, the multi-person trumpet bike contraption is genius. I'm a fan of the high chair with the big bass drum. <laughs> Pedal powered. <laughs> Can you imagine giving that to a two-year-old? Well, maybe there might be another reason that Fred would have to yell, Barney, my pebbles! <laughs> Fred, I just had to make her stop. It was driving me crazy. Sorry. But one piece of animation I do want to single out, which is so smooth from a storytelling standpoint, is the presentation of a strawberry-like fruit to Cindy Lou Who by a procession of ever-smaller Whos. And then the fruit shrinks into the pupil of the Grinch's eye as the scene crossfades back to him. Also, nice design choice to make the Grinch have red eyes. Just looks good. It looks good among the uh, green, so... He's yeah. Christmas colored despite not liking Christmas. Once again, the singing is the worst for the Grinch, as we get another chorus of Fahu Fores, Dahu Dores. And in the bridge of that song, they actually drop a hint of what's to come. With the lyric, Christmas Day is in our grasp so long as we have hands to clasp. Max can't help but be sentimental, but for the Grinch, well... He should speak for himself. I must stop this whole thing. Why, for 53 years I put up with it now. I must stop Christmas from coming. But how? And as Max emerges from the snow that the Grinch's grim rant pushed him into, he has the likeness of a beard and a hat. And the idea is born with the single most deliciously wicked smile ever animated. It just reminds me how a friend of mine said the only reason they think Jim Carrey got the role for the live-action version was he was able to imitate that smile. <laughs> Although I think he needed help in the special effects department to get the hair apart like the Grinch just does here. Yeah. So the plan is, he'll disguise himself as Santa, and Max as a reindeer, 
after trimming one of the lone horns he has access to in a few moments from here, and swipe Christmas right as the Who's are asleep. Our first verse of You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch, is treated to us as the Green One sews his disguise to some light comic business. And folks, while we can't directly put our shoes in a 1966 audience, I have to imagine if they weren't sold on this special by everything preceding this, this had to be the moment that did it. What an iconic song. It really is. I have a nephew who was obsessed with it and insisted his... Not a nephew. uh, A second nephew. Because it's a cousin's kid. Mm. Or would that be second... Oh, never mind. A relative. A relative. A child relative. child relative who was obsessed with the song and insisted his dad, my cousin, sing it a lot. With the reindeer matter settled as well, it's sleigh ride time. And this is one of the points where Chuck leans on his comedic talents and experience from doing the Roadrunner cartoons to make the story fit the half-hour time allotment the special has. This whole sequence, from Max thinking he's just riding for fun, and all the way down the mountain, it's filled with gentle slapstick and Chuck's trademark aside glances to the fourth wall. A lot of great expressions, too. Like, between the Grinch looking over the hill to just Max smiling when he, for he ends up he ends up jumping on the back of the sled. Right. To Max grabbing Grinch's face in fear. Yeah, and, and then the Grinch pulling Max off. Very wily Coyote. Yep. So with all the Who's asleep, the Grinch's larcenous lark begins in earnest slipping down the first chimney with a quick visual of him standing halfway through the top of it that would become arguably the go-to image for the special to be used in print advertisements and television listings for years and years. If you've seen the special as many times as we have, you're probably picturing it in your head right now. It's pretty iconic. Great detail is spent on every dirty deed swiping stockings via a magnet, robbing the tree of all its gifts, raiding the fridge, and stealing candy from babies! And literally slithering down the ground like a snake. (laughs) Much of this is set to further verses of You're a Mean One, but in between verses, right as he's shoving the tree up the chimney, a lone ornament falls and rolls to the children's bedroom. I do. Before we go further on that one, I also want to mention the scene where he shoots the ornaments like through a whole pool style. I do not want to play pool with the Grinch. That's all I want to say. I'm going to get sharked. <laughs> yeah. So Cindy Lou Who wakes up, and June Foray, with her one full line in the whole special, you know, aside from the little cooing like a dove bit, pours her heart into the most innocent sounding childlike performance of her career. God bless that woman. Personal aside, my mom's name is Cindy. And whenever we watched the special when we were growing up, she would remark that when she was a kid, she thought she was Cindy Lou Who. (laughs) See, I I just, I was just randomly remembering because Rob Polson used to do a talk show, uh, like a podcast. And he would do random uh, guests. And it was while uh, June Foray was still alive, but I think she was like 97 or 98 or something. And he did it in front of a live audience, but she 
she mentioned wanting to do it and he was like flabbergasted that she wanted to do it. And he was willing to like, you know, go to her house to record it or something. Cause he was worried about her age. And she's like, no, I want to go there and be in front of the audience. I don't care how old I am. I got to make the time to listen to some of those. I, I have not listened to all of them, but the ones I've listened to are really good. I, I found out that Rob Polson accidentally stole Cam Clark's first role from him. Oh no. Yeah. Rob didn't know until like, until he had Cam on his like show as a guest, which was uh, Cam Clark almost played Haji on the uh, 80s reboot of Johnny Quest. But Rob Paulson got that role and Cam was told that he got it until like the very last minute. And it was like some other guy named Rob Paulson got it. And Rob didn't know until like that interview. <laughs> Needless to say, Rob felt terrible. Back to June Foray. Is this the first time we've encountered her in this podcast? It might be, actually. Took us long did, enough, didn't it? Did Granny appear in this any of the Sylvester episodes we watched? No. Yeah, you might be right. Holy crud. Because, yeah, we haven't done DuckTales or Rocky and Bullwinkle yet. Yeah, well, we are doing DuckTales next month, and we're doing another cartoon she made major contributions to this coming October at, for Chrissy's birthday. Because now that she's a formal part of the podcast, her getting a birthday episode is going to be a thing. Definitely. Um, can can I say something about June Foray? Absolutely. Mel Blank had a lot of respect for June Foray. Someone once said that June Foray was the female Mel Blank, and Mel Blank's response was, "No, I'm the male June Foray." Chuck Jones shared that sentiment. Yep. So back to our special. Uh, this whole thing is a moment of tension, and it shows on the Green Fiend's face. But the Grinch slyly lies through it with the famous. There's a light bulb that won't light on one side, Fib, and sends the wee one back to bed. Fortunately for the Grinch, Cindy didn't notice all the other stuff missing off the walls. <laughs> the theft continues with more fresh gags, as well as some montaging of ones we've seen before. Any particular favorites in this bunch? I like doing the electric model train right into the bag. I think that one's really good. Or just the detail of him licking his fingers before taking each of the uh, light bulb out is also nice. Yeah, he's even so petty as to swipe petals off of flowers. Or dump candy into the bag rather than just, you know, put the whole box of candy into the bag. Before long, the whole town has been robbed clean, with the last thing being the tree in center square being folded up like an umbrella. Also a nice gag taking the whole of his ill-gotten gains to the top of Mount Crumpet as pulled by poor, poor Max. The Grinch resolves to dump the whole thing. But he waits so we can hear the Who's cry at their missing Christmas. Uh, a, lean, a leaning animation so iconic that they decide to swipe it in the... or homage it in The Simpsons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Putting a hand to his ear, the Grinch listens, and all he hears is singing. Christmas came all the same, without gifts, trees, or toys. And he can't figure it out, only complaining to Max. As Pemmy and I have alluded to, this sequence was famously parodied by The Simpsons on the landmark Season 4 episode, Last Exit to Springfield, which, whether planned or not makes it an interesting full-circle gag for Phil Roman. It's so well done, too, because just Mr. Burns leaning out, because he's turned all the power off 
in the entire city because of his employees are on strike and just leaning out and does this exact same lean like to the point to where he even like puts his fingers out a bit and then then does the whole like bit they like, did it without blenders <laughs> yes with with smithers being in the max role complete with him like even the expressions on mr Burns, it's so good it's such a great homage as he puzzles the grinch eventually realizes what dr seuss probably felt in his own heart when he got the idea for the book as the grinch's eyes shift from yellow and red to white and blue and as spoken by boris karloff maybe christmas isn't something you buy from a store maybe christmas perhaps means a little bit more. It is easy to forget that sometimes. In his heartwarming bliss, the Grinch lets go of Max and cue the load about to slip for good! And this is some of the best face work in the special, which is filled with great face work. The Grinch and Max, finally uh, on the same page, struggle to save the, the, the treats. And that heart, that was two sizes too small, grew three sizes, breaking the measuring scale and granting the Grinch superhuman strength. He also might want to see a doctor about that. Your heart growing three ti- three sizes too big is not good. Yeah, ask poor Eddie Guerrero. Oof. So coming down the mountain one last time, the gifts are returned, and the Grinch is essentially reformed, even being given a seat at the feast where he carves the roast beast the first piece of which Cindy Lou Who gives to a very deserving Max. Agreed. Boris narrates some of the lyrics of the Who's Carol as we zoom out of town and back into the beautiful snow. Well, CBS was certainly right to give that big of a budget to this special. Jones's timing and the craftsmanship of his team ensured this special is still as delightful for the eyes as it is for the ears. And... Boris Karloff as the Grinch is so good. Yes, yes. All three major television networks have aired it since the original 1966 broadcast, as well as multiple airings on TBS and TNT. One memorable airing in 1994 on the Ladder Network featured extensive behind-the-scenes interviews and footage hosted by Phil Hartman, which is where a healthy chunk of the information used in this part of the podcast hails from. Wow. I never saw that. It's a bonus feature on several DVD pressings. Also can count as another reference to The Simpsons, since Phil Hartman was uh, two popular characters on that show. Indeed. Hello, I'm Troy McClure, and I'm here. (laughs) Sorry. And this special would forever influence how he perceived the Grinch. He was merely a black and white illustration throughout the book, but the green interpretation has stuck around ever since in just about all media and merchandise. Unfortunately, the uh, I would have to say that the two attempts to uh, make new movies based on this property have come nowhere near as good as this. Before that, though, there would also be a pair of pseudo-sequels, both animated by DePatty Freeling. In 1977, they would produce Halloween is Grinch Night, with Hans Conried, a.k.a. Captain Hook, as the voice of the Green Fiend. We need to do that one one of these years, because that, that special's a trip. And then in 1981, once the Patty Freeling became Marvel Productions, 
they released The Grinch Grinches, The Cat in the Hat, with Bob Holt as the former character. It's a pretty fun special, though not animated anywhere near as good as this. <laughs> or Halloween is Grinch Night, for that matter. Yeah. Budget was definitely a lot smaller on that one, but it's still fun. Now, neither special has had the same lasting impact as the original, but they've both resurfaced on a semi-regular basis. You used to see them a lot on Cartoon Network back in the day. Elsewhere, and much later, as Pemmy alluded to, Universal Studios has tried twice to recapture the magic of this book and special. Once in live action with Jim Carrey as a heavy prosthetic and fur-suited Grinch, and once via CGI from Illumination Studios and starring Benedict Cumberbatch. This might be nostalgia talking, but I don't need Jim Carrey when I've got Chuck Jones, dang it. I I 100% agree with you. I actually have not seen the Illumination one, but from what I've heard, it's very bland. Like I said, the only good thing I've ever, that I know of that came from it was the, uh, <laughs> was that IHOP had the roast beast, like, omelet, which was really good. I, actually, I think it also says a lot that the Illumination one is practically forgotten. I mean, even the Jim Carrey one is at least remembered, whether you like it or not. It's certainly the basis of the all the Grinch costume characters you can find at Universal Studios theme parks to this day during the holiday season. Off-season, the Grinch is portrayed as a more traditional uh, theme park mascot character. Like it or hate it, I, I, being so bad that you're at least memorable sometimes seems to be a lot better than just being mediocre and forgotten. <laughs> We're going to take a short break for station identification, and when we return, we go to the story that got contracted. Humbug. (laughs) Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas will be right back on TBS. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, somehow the single most prolific character in all of Disney's animated canon still ranks second to that mouse that's about to land in the public domain. Still, Donald Duck is one of the company MVPs for relatable humor through some of their most celebrated short subject cartoons. You won't get stuck with all the bad luck if you tune into our podcast in slightly less than two weeks. We now return to Mickey's Christmas Carol. So, while The Grinch might be the most modernly famous piece of children's literature centered around Christmas, the single most adapted piece of Christmas fiction is almost certainly Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Yeah, I actually looked up on Wikipedia to see how many adaptions there are. There's so many adaptions, it's got its own page on Wikipedia, and it's separated by types of adaptions. Originally published in 1843, it has been remade on film, in animation, and on stage countless times, with one surviving silent film adaptation dating back to 1901. I remember there was a 90s live-action version that was on USA that had Patrick Stewart as Scrooge. And of course, locally to Chrissy and myself, is the annual production by Jiva Theater. Ooh, that sounds actually really cool. Like the Grinch after it... This is ultimately a redemptive tale for its antagonistic protagonist, Ebenezer Scrooge, as he is visited by spirits to show him the error of his miserly ways over the course of Christmas Eve. Now, as such, with all these adaptations, 
it's inevitable that animated characters would find themselves inserted into this tale almost as frequently as they would be the classic fairy tales and fables of yore. There's almost as many ways that animation studios have gone about it as there have been examples of it happening, in fact. Two such adaptations, one from 1962 starring UPA's nearsighted septuagenarian Mr. Magoo, and one in the 1990s featuring the Flintstones, simply have the characters starring in a stage production of the story. Other versions have their protagonists stumble headfirst into the story itself and cause no end of new complications, including Scooby-Doo and the real Ghostbusters. <laughs> the real Ghostbusters prevented it from happening by accident. <laughs> Still others, including My Little Pony Friendship is Magic and the 80s revival of the Jetsons, adapt the trappings of the story to the setting of the show itself in one fashion or another. You could argue, though, that the best-known of these adaptations take familiar casts of a cartoon franchise and cast them as the characters in the Dickens story proper. Personal favorite ad adaption of this is probably the Muppets, but I am quite fond of this one, too. This is the approach Disney took for a special theatrical featurette, Mickey's Christmas Carol, though the Looney Tunes would beat them by a few years. Not to mention the Looney Tunes also did it twice. <laughs> the first one in like the seventies had like Yosemite Sam as Scrooge, and then like I think it was like in the twenty tens they did another one, which is Bah Humduck, uh, Looney Tunes Christmas, where uh, Daffy was in the Scrooge role. Both good choices, to be honest. And of course, for coverage of those, go check out our friends on the podcast. That's not quite all, folks. Now, as it turns out. This film is based on a record, 1974's an adaptation of Dickens' Christmas Carol performed by the Walt Disney Players. Hmm. For this record, Disney recruited Alan Young, the actor then known for playing Wilbur in that fanciful sitcom about a talking horse. <clears throat> Hello, I'm Mr. Ed. You sound kind of like a Texan, Mr. Ed. <laughs> well, he did kind of have a southern drawl. True. You know what? I'm kind of surprised we of all the things that people have tried to revive the last, what, last 40 years that we haven't seen someone revive Mr. Ed. <laughs> You're looking yeah. it up to see if, see if someone's tried. There was a 2004 made-for-television movie. Really? With Sherman Helmsley as Mr. Ed. Never knew. <laughs> so, Alan Young was a member of a Dickensian society that was brought on to help adapt the story to better suit the Disney cast. Of course, Scrooge McDuck received the part of his namesake, Ebenezer Scrooge. But McDuck's original voice actor, Bill Thompson, who was known for playing Droopy in most of that character's MGM cartoons, and was Jock the Scottish Terrier in Disney's Lady and the Tramp, had passed away a few years earlier. You, you know, it, it, to be honest, it's kind of, considering that, like, Disney literally, even though he's mostly a comics character at the time, literally had a character whose name was Scrooge, inspired by Ebenezer Scrooge, and hasn't been, hasn't done this sooner, is kind of surprising when you think about it. <laughs> so... In addition to performing as Mickey Mouse and Merlin, Alan Young, 
inherited the role of Scrooge McDuck, which he would perform until his passing in 2016. Of, and of course, Mr. McDee has a long history before this, but we'll discuss that next month. Woohoo! <laughs> Something I'm looking forward to, because personally speaking, Scrooge McDuck is my absolute favorite Disney character, and arguably one of, if not my favorite comic book character. So Now, nearly a decade later, Disney decided to adapt the record into an animated film. And in the process, a smattering of changes were made. Merlin was replaced as the Ghost of Christmas Past by Jiminy Cricket of the movie Pinocchio. While the Ghost of Christmas Yet to Come, originally performed by the Witch from Snow White, who is of course the evil queen in disguise, is taken over by Disney's first villain and oldest continuous character, Pete the Cat. And boy, does he do a good job. Otherwise, uh, the two productions are pretty similar, it turns out. I do think, as much as I like Merlin, um, I think the cha- those two changes work out better for animation. Mm-hmm. Now, ironically, my first memory not only of this version of the story, but any version of the story itself, and my first exposure to Scrooge McDuck, was via a record of the film's complete soundtrack, dialogue, and all that my parents bought for my sister and I. Nice. So packaged up with a re-release of the 1979 movie The Rescuers into theaters for the holiday season of 1983, this film brought Mickey Mouse back to theaters for the first time since the 1953 short subject The Simple Things, and it would only be the third time Scrooge McDuck was animated, period well before the series DuckTales made him much more prolific in the realm of moving pictures. Yeah, yeah. from my understanding, Scrooge McDuck was a character they wanted to actually make Disney shorts with long, long before anything they did do with them, but nothing ever seemed to pan out quite right. Bernie Mattinson, who had started with Disney as an in-betweener on Lady and the Tramp and would do considerable animation and story work over the decades since, took his first stab at directing with this feature. Bernie would make his last contribution to the company as a live actor, as fate would have it, appearing in the 100th anniversary celebration stort Once Upon a Studio, just before he'd pass away. Wow. Yeah. Sadly, like with Bill Thompson, most of the original performers of Mickey Mouse and the rest had passed on by 1983. The lone survivor who could be brought in to perform was Clarence Ducky Nash in his final performance as the one and only Donald Duck. So at least once, Alan Young and Clarence Nash contributed together to an animated masterpiece as their most famous cartoon characters. Quite awesome. Mm -hmm. Nice bit of trivia. Yeah. To fill the big shoes of our remaining cast... We have Wayne Allwine as Mickey Mouse, a role he first performed in 1977's new Mickey Mouse Club TV series, which barely lasted half of that year. It's the one revival of the Mickey Mouse Club that Disney doesn't even remember exists. Probably for the better. He'd he'd go on to play Mickey for a long time. Indeed. He would perform Mickey up until 2009, right alongside his wife, Russie Taylor, as Minnie Mouse. That's, you know what, that's just just plain awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Veteran voice actor Hal Smith 
No stranger to Disney, having inherited the role of Goofy from Pinto Colvig in 1967, would make his final turn as the dim-witted dog for this production, as well as voicing Ratty from The Adventures of Mr. Toad in that character's uh, small part here. Hal Smith, I'm no better as a different Disney character, a certain Flintheart Glomgold. Mm-hmm. Another prolific performer, Will Ryan, would do quite a few characters here. Namely, Willie the Giant, Pete, Molly, and the Weasels, alongside Wayne Allwine. He actually also does Pete for a few appearances he does in DuckTales. Man, we're going to just keep mentioning DuckTales, aren't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, we heard the actress for Daisy Duck in this production, Patricia Paris, previously as Bubbles in Jabberjaw. And her varied career is given a little more detail in that podcast. But believe me, when I say varied, I mean it. You can't see it, but I'm nodding in agreement. <laughs> Finally, character actor Eddie Carroll would perform as Jiminy Cricket for only the second time in a run that would go well into the 2000s in a variety of media formats, including the Kingdom Hearts video games. I, I almost got to say that Jiminy Cricket himself is almost more iconic than the movie he came from, and the movie he came from is great, Pinocchio is great, but... I don't know. I just think of Jiminy Cricket more as just a Disney thing for the most part. Well, there's a reason for that. Uh, But we'll get into that when we discuss Disney television specials someday. Also, the same thing can kind of be said for Tinkerbell, too. But again, oh, for sure. So when I hit play on Disney Plus for the special right up front, Alan Young gets top billing and Clarence Nash is in the and Peter Dinklage position in the cast. Because you know they they also save a very important actor for the uh, for the for very last, so they can say and here's this other very important person. Yeah. I am also noticing longtime Disney contributors like Eric Larson, who was one of Disney's nine old men. I see Randy Cartwright and <laughs> John Lasseter before Pixar. Still, that's a surprise. Lasseter was one of a large crop of animation talents that Eric Larson himself brought into the studio through a training program in 1973 that also included the likes of the aforementioned Randy Cartwright, plus Brad Bird, Tim Burton, Don Bluth, and Henry Selick, among others. All people who would go on to do their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Magnitude. This was done. Yeah, this was done before Don Bluth said. Said the heck with this, I'm going to go make my own animation studio with hookers and blackjack. (laughs) Or at least a scantily clad princess. Yeah. You'll see our discussion on Space Ace for a little bit more on that. So on the day of Christmas Eve, Miserly Scrooge's establishing moment is gruffly denying giving a penny to a poor dog trying to warm his hands over a fire. As in the background... We spot the big bad wolf and the three little pigs caroling and not at odds with each other for once. No, the the big bad wolf is even uh, getting money for the poor, uh, (laughs) Salvation Army style. Scrooge, approaching his counting house, notices Marley's name on the sign and reminisces about his late friend swindling. In his will, he left me enough money for his tombstone. (laughs) Ha! And I had a buried at sea! Wow! He says it so gleefully, too! That's one that went over my head when I was little. Dark. Yeah. 
Also, uh, we might wind up referring to these characters by their given names and their stage names interchangeably. With Scrooge McDuck playing THE Scrooge, it almost can't be helped. I mean, when you got a character literally named Scrooge, you know, you you got no choice. (laughs) Scrooge finds Bob Cratchit, played by Mickey Mouse, and scolds him for intending to use a single piece of coal to thaw out the frozen ink. You used a piece of coal last week! And, And let's be honest, Mickey is definitely the perfect candidate for this role. Yeah. Mickey can only meekly ask for a half day on Christmas, and will still get docked a half day's pay for it, as he's paid two shillings and a haypenny. That's a halfpenny for us laymen, a day. The haypenny, it turns out, was a raise for doing Scrooge's laundry. Is it really a raise when you're given more work? Scrooge happily counts his money as the door opens, and it's his nephew Fred, played by Donald Duck. Of course. (laughs) When you have your actual nephew play your nephew. Yeah. Scrooge does not share in his nephew's Christmas cheer, even with Cratchit's appeals to the spirit of the season. It's a little unusual seeing Donald being the cheerful one in a scene. Donald loves Christmas. Oh, yeah. Fred, slash Donald, wants to invite his uncle for dinner, and Scrooge plays along, saying that he imagines that he'll have goose with chestnut... Wait. It's goose, not duck. Never mind that they do have relatives that are geese, but still... (laughs) I'm oh, not 100% sure Disney thought this one out. Oh, is that what happened to poor Gladstone? <laughs> I guess his luck ran out. <laughs> Regardless, the end result is Ebenezer isn't moved and literally kicks Fred out. Grant, when he does kick Fred out, we do get uh, the, the traditional Donald tantrum sounding sound. Yes. Bob still tries to see the positive, but Ebenezer calls Fred peculiar and stubborn, thinking he's back yet again as the as the bell for the door rings. But instead, it's Rat and Mole come to collect for charity. Nice uh, reference to uh, the Wind and the Willows. Yeah, it's just nice seeing these characters get used. But They're good this, design. Yeah, this plea for charity goes as well as you'd expect, as Scrooge appeals to logic, and tells them if, that if the poor weren't poor, Ratty and Molly would be out of a job. So he just kicks them out and hucks the wreath from Fred onto Mole's nose, leaving them both stunned speechless. This is a nice bit of terrible, a nice bit of horrible logic. <laughs> You'll work all your life to make money, and people want you to just give it away. Yeah. He's not entirely wrong, except it's less give it away and more just the world takes it away. But still. Yeah. At 7 p.m., Bob's about to leave, but Scrooge observes the clock is two minutes fast. But he waves it off and lets Bob Cratchit go home. At least Scrooge still has a soul. Yeah, this is the first charitable thing he's done all, all special. Two hours later, Scrooge is locking up and heads for his home in the chill of winter. Unlocking the door to his home, the knocker takes the shape of Jacob Marley's face and wails for Scrooge. What knockers? (laughs) 
If Christy were here, she'd slap me for that. <laughs> Can I say that, honestly, Goofy is a weird choice for Jacob Marley. Very! <laughs> Yuck. I stole money! Yuck! <laughs> Out of curiosity, who would you have picked from Disney's repertoire of characters in this up to this period? It's kind of hard, because the, the character I'd think of that would probably fit best is used in a, another role that he does way better, so... Because, you know, you, you think someone who's would be like a swindler, the first thing you're going to think of is Pete, but Pete is much better in the role he has later in this, so yeah, that's a... In that light, and for these purposes, I would have used Flint Hart. You know what, that would have worked, actually. Maybe it was the fact that they didn't think anyone would know who Flint Hart was, though. Right. He hadn't appeared in animation yet. But we also had to get a vocal part for Goofy in here somehow. Because the <laughs> part that I could think of that would have best fit, Fezziwig, has no dialogue. Yeah. Still weird choice, but hey, you know, had to get Goofy a main role, so. In disbelief, Scrooge honks the knocker's nose, and when Marley utters, Ouch! Scrooge panics and races in the home. You, you know what? Maybe Goofy does work for this role because I don't think any other character would have had as good of a reaction as Goofy to having his nose pinched like that. Maybe the Mad Hatter. That would have been an interesting choice. Yeah. Shrugging the experience off, Scrooge walks upstairs as Marley's chain-riddled shadow follows, leaving the duck increasingly paranoid. When the shadow lifts Scrooge's hat, the miser uses the shadow of his cane to tickle him and has his fears confirmed, slamming the bedroom door shut on the shadow. Scrooge has a lot of locks on his bedroom door, you know that? Well, when you're as worried about your money as he is, that makes sense. Also, doesn't Scrooge know the shadow always knows? <laughs> the shadow always knows. <laughs> That was more an impression of the laugh from the coaster song, The Shadow Knows, rather than The Shadow's actual laugh. Yeah, works. Yeah. Great song, by the way. Love, love me some coasters. <laughs> of course, no ghost is stopped for long by a mere door. Even one as clumsy as Goofy slash Marley, who trips on Scrooge's cane. You know, I, I have to say, I love the fact that he, he's able to walk through the wall, walk through the door, but still manages to trip on the cane. <laughs> That's goofy for you. Yuck. We get the now familiar story of how Marley's greed left his spirit bound with heavy chains. And if Scrooge is to avoid this fate, or worse, he has to change his ways. And three more ghosts are inbound to show him the why and wherefore all tinged with Goofy's light slapstick and aw shucks style humor. I, I do love, there's a lot of touches I love in this. Like when Scrooge is telling Goofy about, or Jacob about all the terrible stuff he does, and he actually briefly gets proud of it and then realizes, no, no, that's not. <laughs> or uh, of the safes he's carrying in chains, one of them is a piggy bank that Scrooge literally grabs and shakes to listen to. Yeah. Oh, there's so many good details in this. This sequence ends with Marley avoiding the cane, but tripping down the stairs. <clears throat> you had to get that in there. Of course. I hope I didn't wake my parents up. 
a worried Ebenezer does go to sleep after checking for spirits in the flue of the chimney and under the bed, and then dismisses it as more humbug. But as he sleeps, at 1 a.m., in hops the ghost of Christmas past, Jiminy Cricket, complete with badge. Little callback to Pinocchio there. Nice detail. He wakes Scrooge back up by ringing on the bell of his alarm clock. They've got a lot to do, the spirit says, to visit a time when Scrooge didn't think kindness was a waste. Off they go into the cold night via umbrella flight, and Jiminy jibes that he thought Scrooge liked looking down on the world. That's a good dig. Yeah, good dig. If you didn't mention it, I would (laughs) have. They arrive at the Fezziwig Tea Company and one of the annual Christmas parties of years gone by. It's cameo central in this scene, as Mr. Toad is Fezziwig himself, and we can spot the likes of Lady Cluck from Robin Hood, as well as Clarabelle Cow and Horse Horse Collar, and others amongst the revelers. Like Grandma Duck and Chippendale and the well, nephews. Well, they show up a little bit later, and a young... Well, Grandma Duck is in the... Uh... Is in the flashback right before uh, we even see a uh, horse, uh, horse uh, collar. Right, but I'm I'm speaking of uh, Chippendale and the nephews. They're a moment later. Yeah, a young shy Scrooge sits in the corner, and it's Isabel, played by Daisy Duck, who gets him out of his proverbial shell to try and get a mistletoe kiss. You're also standing on my foot. <laughs> Very good delivery. But she settles for a dance as the aforementioned cameos from Chippendale and Donald's nephews appear. Present-day Scrooge remembers how much he loved her, but in ten years' time, he only loved his counting house, and he forecloses the mortgage on Isabel's honeymoon cottage without a word of his promise to marry her. Oof. That scene is so cold. God, it's so cold. Only an hour late, too. Present-day Scrooge can't bear the memories but Jiminy reminds him that he made these memories himself. 2 a.m. rings, and the ghost of Christmas present smells a stingy little Englishman. It's Willie the Giant from the venerable short cartoon Mickey and the Beanstalk, playing this spirit. Nice uh, close-up of his eye as he looks into Scrooge's bed. That's another callback. Because I think they did that, that almost that same illustration in the original short. Most likely. It's been a while since I've seen Same. I gotta fix that. You know, that has a scene where Donald just goes effing nuts. <laughs> He's got a bountiful feast representing the generosity of the heart. Something that Scrooge has denied his fellow man. And we see more uh, animal food that is also represented by actual animal characters in the animation. Was that the fourth little pig? Oof. Well, no, maybe it's different. Maybe there's both anthropomorphic and non-anthropomorphic animals. You know, some people eat monkeys. I wouldn't, but some people do. We can't very well now. Only Mickey Jones is left. (laughs) Okay, that's a good one. Nice. You got me. I try. (laughs) But even some men would give the likes of Ebenezer kindness. And Willie takes him in pocket to show him. But first, he needs to fashion a flashlight from a street lamp. That's a cute gag. 
even before that, there's a lot of just good animation moments with Willie, like like the scene where like Scrooge like tries to escape by going up his sleeve, and you see Willie put his arm up the sleeve and grab him while he's going out the back collar. A lot of just really good little animation bits with him. It's nice to see this character get a return. First stop, a shrieking woman. Okay, okay, actual first stop, the Cratchit <laughs> home, where Scrooge can't believe how small the meal is, needing to be reminded his stingy wages are what's causing it. Boy, is that a, that's a small bird. Yeah. Is that a quill? Could be worse. We haven't seen Cinderella's bird friends in a while. Oh, no. Maybe they actually stopped the pigeon. Oh! <laughs> Good one. Minnie Mouse is Emily Cratchit, of course. And she has no spoken lines, making her arguably the largest victim of this abbreviated runtime. Yeah, it does feel kind of weird not having her say mean things about Scrooge in this interpretation, because that's kind of one of her trademark bits. That character, not Minnie, but that character's trademark bits in the actual Christmas Carol. Tiny Tim limps into the scene as Mickey dotes on his youngest child. Scrooge asks what's wrong with the kid, and Willie replies that it's a lot. And if things don't change, Tim's chair will be empty before long. Now, this whole sequence with the Ghost of Christmas Present is another victim of the uh, truncated runtime, since there's visits to Nephew Fred and and maybe a couple other scenes, too, that have been excised. Yeah, it feels weird not having him see, like, his nephew mock him or whatnot. But, you know, like I said, as good as this in- this as good as this interpretation is, it's it is kind of like Christmas Carol speed run. <laughs> the light vanishes in the Cratchit home, and so does Willie, leaving Scrooge alone as smoke envelops him, and he arrives at a tombstone. The smoke is from a cigar held by a hooded figure, the ghost of Christmas future, instantly recognized as Pete the Cat by any longtime Disney fan. Even before he removes his hood. Yeah, but it, the scene where he removes his hood is so good. Yeah. <laughs> Scrooge immediately asks of Tiny Tim, and the ghost only points to the Cratchits mourning over his grave. I just have to say that seeing Mickey this upset is... If there's anything that puts a stab in your heart, it's seeing Mickey Mouse be legitimately sad. No kidding. We, we talk a lot about how... Mickey Man has become so much of an everyman, he gets bland, but there's still a childlike innocence to the character that persisted even into that phase of his presentation. So, yeah, seeing him like that, that's a stab to the heart. Begging to be told these events can be prevented, Scrooge overhears the cackling of weasel gravediggers working on on another grave and observing... The deceased's funeral had no mourners. Why, it's yours, Ebenezer! The richest man in the cemetery! <laughs> Pete knocks Scrooge into the hole while laughing, and as Ebenezer hangs on a vine, the casket opens with the burning fires of... We'll take a guess, man! <laughs> H-E double hockey sticks! <laughs> 
the bad place below, as Norbert would put it. <laughs> the, the, the summer home of <laughs> Beezlepup. <laughs> Ebenezer cries that he'll change as he falls onto his bedroom floor. It's Christmas Day. Ebenezer hasn't missed it. And a positively giddy Scrooge isn't stopped from mending his ways, even by stepping through his hat and putting on his scarf while it's still hanging on his coat stand. He realizes he can't run, he can't go outside dressed like that. So he grabs his cane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Running into Ratty and Molly, he proceeds to donate ever more generously each time they try to protest that he might be being too generous with his gold sovereigns. Also, I want to mention that there's a brief cameo from some of the kids from uh, Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. So, the most Don Bluthian looking characters in a in a Disney production, in my opinion. Aside from uh, the kids cheering at the end of the rescuers, perhaps. Fair enough. But no matter, Scrooge is on a roll as he hops and skips on his way, encountering more background characters from Robin Hood. And he encounters Fred again whose horse-drawn carriage is being drawn by the horse from the Wind in the Willows. Nice refs. And Scrooge happily accepts Fred's invitation to dinner, and then goes out to buy toys for the local kids. But he has to put on his mean act whenever visiting Bob Cratchit. Yeah. He tries to compose himself to be more like the version of himself his lone laborer is used to, and he tries to pass off a huge sack as laundry. But Tiny Tim spots a loose teddy bear, and Scrooge can barely keep it concealed from the youngest Cratchit, let alone the el- the elder father. Nice animation on that whole bit of Scrooge trying to hold hide the uh, bear, as well as good dramatic buildup on his uh, reveal of what he wants to tell yeah. Bob. He whines into the nerve of Bob, asking for all, a half day, only to insist he has no choice but to give him toys! No, 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 no. A raise. And making Bob his new partner. Merry Christmas, and God bless us, everyone. And we end with a good a good ending bit with Scrooge taking a Tiny Tim and putting him on, on, on his leg as he sits in the rocking chair. Very, very heartwarming. Following its debut in theaters, Mickey's Christmas Carol would run on television for the first time on NBC on December 10th paired with a couple other Disney shorts. Since then, it's been in Disney's rotation of holiday programming for their own channel's days as a premium option like HBO, and would air on all the major networks alongside other short subjects before landing, finally, on ABC Family before it became Freeform. These days, it seems to have been crowded out by newer Christmas specials and movies. But... It can reliably be found on home media and streaming on Disney Plus during the holiday season. I say this holds up. This holds up even better than I remembered it holding up. It's actually, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it's very truncated and very like, uh, like I said, it's it's like the Christmas Carol and Speed Run. It still holds up really well. And this production was also included as a major component of the direct DVD release Mickey's Magical Christmas, snowed in at the House of Mouse. I really think uh, I think this this special actually put me more in the Christmas spirit, weirdly, than the Grinch did. Though I still love the Grinch too. Is yeah. truncated and as quick as it goes, which is what's weirdest about this is it moves so fast. Yet I swear, like 
other 30 minute versions or I guess 25 minute versions of this story feels like they still keep more in than this does hmm. weirdly, but, or doesn't feel near as quick pace, but then again, the quick pace also helps. So I don't know. I'd say this is probably my second, the favorite version of this story. And our first version of that would occur because Disney would continue to adapt to Christmas Carol in the ensuing years with the Muppets. In their first major release after the passing of Jim Henson in 1992, that version, of course, featured Michael Caine as Scrooge and a commanding vocal performance by Muppet performer Jerry Nelson, both as the ghost of Christmas present and as his one of his own uh, signature characters, Robin the Frog. That, I, I think of, of all of the versions of this, the Muppet Christmas Carol is definitely my favorite. It, it's so good. And it's... So true to the text of the book, even with all the Muppet shenanigans. Yeah. And Michael Caine does such a great job. Too. Oh, yeah. One missed opportunity, though. You have Statler and Waldorf as Jacob and Robert Marley. <laughs> What's short for Robert? Bob. Bob Marley. <laughs> it's right there! <laughs> They could have done a, a reggae song. Eh. Even my dad picked up on that, but, you know, my dad's a big Bob Marley fan. <laughs> Disney would return to the story again in 2009 with Jim Carrey. There he is again! <laughs> As Ebenezer Scrooge. I've never seen that one because all those Zemecca, like, CG movies give me the creeps. Yeah, this one was directed by Robert Zemeckis and done in motion capture CGI through his company Image Movers Digital, the same people behind the Polar Express and Beowulf, and who were roundly mocked by the recent live-action animation hybrid uh, thing that was the revival of Chippendale's Rescue Rangers. <sighs> Also, didn't they do, like, uh, Ma Mars Needs Moms? Wasn't that another one? Or yeah. was that something else? Yeah. Yeah, all the CG on those movies just creep me out. They're so uncanny valley. And, of course, this recap of Disney adaptations of A Christmas Carol isn't including the various other homages done for assorted television shows that Disney has produced, both live-action and animated. Yeah, even uh, the uh, DuckTales, the 2000... 18 or was it 16 2016 uh, DuckTales reboot does a reference to the uh, Christmas Carol, but the way they did, it's actually funny. It's uh, the ghosts of Christmas past, present and future will sometimes visit. will visit uncle Scrooge on Christmas because one time they went to him by accident instead of the real Ebenezer Scrooge and just realized he was a much more fun guy. Oh, <laughs> wait, Scrooge McDuck is a mushroom. <laughs> Got you again. Got it. Got me. He's a fun guy. Yeah. You know who else is a fun guy? Toad. Oh, but anyway. Yeah. I think that just about wraps up uh, this year's Christmas special and uh, our run for 2023. It's been a it's been a fun time doing these. Yeah. And 2024 promises to be even bigger because we've got some big stuff on the horizon we've already alluded to doing uh donald duck shorts and duck tales in january and we're talking about doing the smurfs and you know charlie brown christmas and so much else 
And of course, and even a couple of shows that I'm sure James isn't looking forward to. Poor Billy. (laughs) Yes, you'll have to watch Sport Billy and Johnny Cipher. Oh, Huck, help me. But before that, thank you all for joining us over the course of this year. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these podcasts as much as we enjoyed making them. On behalf of Chrissy and, of of course, our friends Kyle Pedia and Justin Toner and other guests, including Chad Olson, everyone else who contributed this year, thank you. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure you leave us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you're on YouTube, give us a like, subscribe, comment, ring the notification bell. All of it helps. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, indeed. Do you have the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cereal? No, but I think uh, Wegmans has some uh, holiday crunch berries. Ooh. Sounds good. Oh no, all berries. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go restock that breakfast cereal. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. And see ya! (laughs) The penny and James to the soda, hopefully funny cartoon. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.